Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 235. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of the Lend at Fintech conference. Today's episode is sponsored by Lendit Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th at the Javits Center in New York City. Lending and banking are converging, and Lendit Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Lendit Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to lendit.com USA to register. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome David Breer. He is the CEO and founder of 11FS. Now, you may know 11FS from their podcast series. That's how I got to know them. They also had a, a very popular video that was out late, late last year. But they are so much more than a media company. They are doing all kinds of things, you know, including providing you know, banking infrastructure and consulting. And they have a, a product where they record user journeys from different fintech companies and banks and all kinds of technology companies all over the world which we talk about, we talk about all those sort of things. We talk about what's wrong with banking today, what banking is going to look like in the future, and much more. It was a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. So uh, I'd like to get this thing started by giving the listeners some background. And you've, you've had an interesting career, spent a lot of time in banking. It seems like digital banking has been uh, something you've been focused on for some time. So why don't you give the listeners some of the highlights on what you've done today. Yeah, uh, banking was very much my uh, second love, unfortunately, rather than my first love. <laughs> uh, I sort of grew, grew up uh, very much kind of emphasis on playing sports and running around, really. So uh, unfortunately, after a, a career-ending injury, so uh, all three ligaments of my left knee, I had to get a proper job. So um, really surveying what was the the most interesting space sort of 20 years out, then uh, I was looking at either oil and gas, which seemed a bit unsustainable, or the technology industry or financial services. So I, being a bit of a, a, a greedy gut, so I, I sort of plumbed for two out of the three. So uh, went into the computing side of things and then started on a, a bit of a safari around financial services. So myself, personally, I've worked in big banks, big insurers, big management consultancies, uh, Indian offshoring companies. And really, that all leads me to believe that digital banking is really only 1% finished. Mm -hmm. uh, with all of the changes that we've seen when it comes to technology and everything that's actually happening in the lateral industries, resetting what customers' expectations is, uh, then actually there's, there's so much more in this journey really to go. So hopefully, we'll start to see a lot more uh, real innovation coming through. We, we argue, in all honesty, I, I don't think we've actually seen digital banking yet. It's, right. uh, it's this thing out on the horizon. We've seen digitized banking. We've seen people take uh, very much what they've got in the analog world and sort of dumb it down for distribution through analog, uh, through digital channels. But it really doesn't mean the same as, as what truly digital really is. Right. So, um, so for me, that's what we do today. We're uh, helping people bring about that change. Okay. So, We'll get into more of that in a bit, but I wanted to just give us give the listeners uh, the, the the founding story of Eleven FS. Like, how did you guys get together? What were you trying to achieve? Um, yeah, just tell us all about how that came to be. 
Yeah, sure. Uh, so back in, well, the 11FS is nearly four years old now, so four in April. So uh, really, I had a kind of always an inkling that I'd go and do something, go and build a build a thing, but I needed enough knowledge to actually go and make that happen. Uh, I think so many people get really preoccupied with being an entrepreneur and starting a business uh, that they often do it before they really, really can actually make that type of change happen, mm-hmm. or even to the point where they've got a sustainable model around them that actually is not only from a financial perspective, but just from a network perspective in terms of the people that you bring in. So for me, after working in all those angles of financial services, I thought, do you know what, I think there's probably a better way now. Uh, the industry is at a, a real inflection point. And, and actually over the next 10 years, I, I really feel like the, the whole fabric of financial services will be, will be changed, whether it's the, the technology, whether it's the, the fundamental structure, the operating capability, even the competitors that are in the space. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think what it, what it actually means to be a financial services company in 2020 is really up for grabs. So for me, that's the most exciting thing. You know, at that point, I was like, well, if the whole world is changing, then actually we should try and bring about some of that change and really shape what that means and shape what happens in the industry. So we founded 11FS. And actually, the, the you know, I still stand by the, the hardest thing was really the beginning. Actually, once you've started something successful, then the momentum behind it is is really sort of magnetic. It continues to draw in interesting things and draw in interesting people. But going from, uh, you know, leaving Gartner, where I was running their global digital banking practice, to actually getting other people who believed what I believed was really, you know, an interesting challenge. But mm-hmm. join they did. I, you know, I had uh, Jason Bates join, who was uh, co-founder of Monzo before this. Simon Taylor join, who previously was uh, running the blockchain R&D division at Barclays Bank. Uh, and also uh, Ross Methvin, who was previously running the research practice at a research house called Mapper. So, you know, having the, the merry band together and sitting in a Starbucks, as, uh, as many a good uh, startup story begins, we uh, sort of began on, well, if we believe that the fabric of financial services is changing, then how do we have the impact that we want to? And, um, you know, fast forward three years and three and three quarter years, and uh, we just tipped over 180 people. We've built out brand new greenfield banks all over the planet. We're building out products for ourselves and uh, have a lot of good fun while we're doing it as well. Okay. Well, I want to I sort of dig into the different things because you, you, you have a lot of components to your business. And, uh, and I got to know you from your podcast uh, that, that I've been listening to now for many years, and it's an excellent show, and I'll link to it in the show notes here. But why don't you just describe you know, the different components, maybe just quickly a summary of the different components, and we'll, then we'll dig into each one. Yeah, sure. I mean, we um, we really focused within 11FS on culture and talent. Uh, I honestly think they're the only two things that really, really matter in this world. If you have the right talent and you unlock that potential, you unleash that potential with the right culture, then whatever we sort of place that emphasis, we shine that light on, we can do better than anybody else. Uh, and for us, that really sort of breaks down into two main areas of the business, which is we have a services business where we are working with people to define what it is that they should be doing, and then actually put that into action, whether it's uh, you know, building a brand new greenfield organization in the US or whether it's building a, you know, a, a brand new thing over in Hong Kong. It's, it's really not just about 
PowerPoint and what the idea should be. This isn't a strategy. This is about execution. So how do you put in place the right products? How do you put in place the right designers, the right engineers? Uh, even down to how do you create a new age of, uh, of really what service actually is? And then the, on the other hand of the business, what we're doing is we're building products that actually help people make that journey more efficient. So we have two, two of them that are in the market right now, but we're working on many more. One of them is called uh, 11FS Pulse, which is a global benchmarking tool. I actually had the idea for this back when I was working at Lloyds Banking Group because I got really frustrated with people basically having this process called ideation at the beginning of all of their projects, which to me was essentially just them figuring out the knowledge that they should know to do the work for us in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, so for us, what Pulse is, is it's a global benchmarking tool. You can go in like you do with Netflix, type in any fintech or any bank on the planet, and play back the actual experiences that they give to their consumers. Because why start with a blank sheet of paper? Why not start where the best is left off? The other product that we have is called 11FS Foundry. This is what we really believe if you built a technology stack from today with all of the advancements, with all of the commoditization around technology in both the cloud space, the data space, and, and even actually collapsing the monolith that many organizations have down to single engines, what would that look like and what would it be? Uh, and that's what we've set out to do with, the, with uh, a partnership actually with the biggest bank in Norway. We are building out with Foundry really a network of networks. It's about how do we pull together organizations to really fix the problem that they all have, which is legacy technology. So would you say that's that's the biggest problem um, with, with banking today, particularly with, with the larger banks? Is it, I mean, maybe we, before we dig into those uh, those pieces there, I'm just curious to sort of, you know, given your time, you know, obviously at a large bank and consulting at large banks, is it is it technology is the, is the issue or is there something deeper? Uh, honestly, I think, um, I mean, if you ask any big bank, you know, middle management will say, uh, it's regulatory, uh, middle management will say it's technological, but fundamentally it's cultural. You know, if you, if you look at any organization globally of a good scale, the reason why they cannot deliver the things that they want to deliver comes down to not what they want to do, but fundamentally the way in which they do it. Uh, I think if you look at any organization that has been successful, unfortunately, what happens in, in many instances is they, they sort of ossify around the thing that made them successful, which when the market conditions were exactly as they needed them to be was fantastic. But fundamentally, when those market conditions change, then the tactics that you deploy are just fundamentally not the, the right tactics for the, the market in the way that they need to be. So, you know, in a world where, uh, you know, not so long ago, Big Bank A only had to worry about Big Bank B or Big Bank C. Uh, so nobody really had to do too much to keep up with one another. And the technology that was underpinning these organizations sort of almost created this annual cycle of change, you know, the, the big transformation, the big campaign that kind of came forward, the billion that was going to be spent to kind of move the, the company forward. But the reality of the world that we live in today, where fintech has shown that actually, you know, 15 or 20 people who are, you know, highly trained and highly motivated can do more than 5,000 people without that ability, then this is really where big organizations are being shown a better way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the advent of fintech, I'm categorically familiar, is, is not really the, the benefit isn't really about actually you know, small organizations taking over the big organizations, it's that the big organizations suddenly have had the option of doing nothing taken away. And because of this, what we're seeing is 
really big global organizations, really big banks, and even smaller community banks, realizing that actually, if they did what they did 30, 40, 50 years ago, but did it today, they would be in a completely different place than they were before. And many of the work that we take on right now is is really sort of focused down in that spot. Interesting, interesting. So, so then, um, what about the the digital the digital digital? You talk about the fifteen to twenty guys, and some of these digital banks are now getting a lot bigger than that. But how? I mean, how? I'm just like I'm curious about you know the the, the impact of these of these digital banks. Obviously, they're having the, the, it's been a wake up call for for the banking system. But you know, the thing that's the thing that I find super interesting is that big banks. Despite this, their challenges are very profitable, and yet challenger banks, uh, despite how, how how you know all their advantages, are not profitable. And how do you sort of juxtapose those two things? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at two things in the same industry at very different points in their life cycle, right? Uh, if you would have looked at a Bank of America, you know, a two two years into their cycle. They would have been in a fundamentally different place as well. You know, they they didn't start with you know 200 different products and you know 100,000 people doing front you know frontline cost you know customer services. They didn't start with the brands that they have today. So for me, really, while fintech is fintech is doing an amazing job at acquiring customers. You know, if you look at Chime over in the US, what is it, five million customers that they have now? So you know, to think that they're not having an impact, I think is is sort of wishful thinking on the the bank side of things, but they're definitely not at the point where they're really taking massive chunks out of the the revenue models of the the biggest banks. Now, that doesn't say that other people are not doing that, because actually, if you look at, I think in the US market, the the biggest threat actually to to the, the top five banks is actually outside of industry threat. You know, if you look at, and when I say outside of industry, I don't just mean outside of financial services. I actually mean other financial services players who fundamentally don't offer those products today. If you look at pretty much the strategy that Goldman Sachs is deploying right now is, hey, we've got lots of money. How can we really shake up financial services in, in the US? Like, how can we deploy our balance sheet with partnerships with, you know, Apple for Apple Card or with Amazon for lending or, you know, whoever else has got major distribution plays? Because, you know, the thing that people always hold on to longest, and if, you know, history sort of teaches us anything with the stories of Blockbuster or Kodak or whatever, is fundamentally the, the thing that people hold on to most is, is their business models. And when, and when you're not protecting a business model, when you're not on the, the defensive, but fundamentally you're, you're on the offensive going into new territories and new markets and, and look, seeking out new opportunities, then you don't protect your existing margin. You look to attack somebody else's. So for me, actually, the, the biggest threat definitely within the U.S. market right now is, is FS players who have a bigger balance sheet or big non-FS digital players who actually can start using brands and communities of people who fundamentally love what they do to really parlay that into a financial services experience. Mm-hmm. You know, at this stage, pretty much anybody can be a bank, uh, given the regulatory framework and, you know, abstracting those things through you know, different players in the US market. And at that stage, why would you not get into FS? Why would you not do that and start tapping into some of those revenues? Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to I want to just um, go back and talk about your Pulse product because I find it fascinating. You, you've got, you, you've sort of, you've benchmarked all these user journeys in, you know, when I was looking through your website, seeing just about every, every you know, financial services firm you can think of. And 
you know, maybe just uh, describe exactly what you did there and how you were able to have like thousands and thousands of user journeys recorded. Yeah, I mean the um, the, the the sort of piece that really puts a, a light on this is, I mean, banking is incredibly experiential these days. You know, it isn't about, uh, you know, a piece of paper that turns up on your doorstep. It's it's fundamentally the the service in which the, the financial services player creates for you. So for me, actually, the best way, uh, whether you're a designer, you're a product person, you're a, uh, you're a strategist within the bank, the best way people can really understand how good they are is actually by understanding how good everybody else is around them. And not only in your geography, but fundamentally, what does best in class look like? And really what Pulse is set out to do is how can we give the, uh, you know, the, the name Pulse? How can we put the fingers of the industry on the Pulse? How can it really understand exactly what's happening out there globally, whether it's, you know, people in the U.S. learning from what people are doing in China or understanding really what does super apps do? You know, everybody's kind of heard of Alipay, but has anybody really ever seen the experiences? Fundamentally, like bizarrely, in some instances, we've got people using Pulse internally to their organization to go and show their internal legal department that actually somebody has not only done the thing that they said wasn't possible, but they've done it in our market and, and it's really, really successful. Hmm. So um, really, given, as I say, given how experiential banking is today, then really being able to put the uh, insights of what your competitors are really doing in the market at your fingertips definitely sort of shortens those cycles on creating good product internally in organizations and allows everybody just to kind of step their game up. Right, right. And so then how how are you technically able to record so many of these uh, user journeys from all over the world? So we um, obviously with everything that we do, I mean, community is a massive thing for us at 11FS. And actually, if you look at all of the major hubs from a fintech perspective, we've got a, a really deep community that works with us to create the, the content that we need. So mm-hmm. for us, it was a, a, a natural extension. Uh, you know, the, as I say, the the community side of everything that we sort of build out is is really, really powerful. So being able to tap into that to generate benefit from them in terms of uh, the financial side of things, in terms of what we can bring to them with that. But then also the, the sort of import-export model that we use to, to make sure that actually we can always have people who are uh, really got their fingers on the pulse when it comes to the industry in those changing areas. Because, you know, there are things changing weekly and we, you know, within 72 hours have a new piece of content that's broken somewhere in far fun places like China or anywhere on the world to uh, make sure that the, the people who have Pulse are, are constantly looking at what's best. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So then let's, let's move on to Foundry, which uh, I, I find also very interesting that you've been able to, you know, you're not just a, a consulting firm, but you're actually going and building things. And, you know, I, I've read that you've got this, uh, you know, partnership with uh, DNB, which I think is Norway's largest bank. But tell us a little bit about exactly what you're trying to trying to achieve here. Are you looking to displace the, the Jack Henrys and the Fiserv's of the world, or exactly what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, so uh, I mean, really, Foundry, we didn't really set out to build. You know, this wasn't our intention to build a, a core banking system and, and full stack architecture. We sort of got to the point where we we sort of had to. I mean, after building out, uh, you know, a few go-to-market propositions for people, inevitably what turns to is a, 
a question over what the strategic platform is and and actually what the uh, what is really needed and what is really required. Our CTO actually at, at uh, 11FS used to be the CTO of uh, uh, an investment trading uh, firm called Nutmeg in the UK, but mm-hmm. before that, actually a, a really large betting group called Betfair. And actually, Ewan's always quite bemused by how hard financial services is. You know, if you if you look at betting, he develops the in-play betting capability, which basically will allow, you know, 100 million people watching the Super Bowl to get their odds uh, updated to their mobile devices, allowing them to make, you know, different bets depending on which way the wind is blowing. And actually, if you can do that in real time and service that type of thing, then the reality of what a loan and a mortgage and a credit card is, is relatively straightforward. So for him, actually, what we've done with Foundry, you know, off the back of, uh, you know, going into uh, a number of different banks around the world and going, look, if your aspiration is to create, you know, intelligent digital services, if you really want to deliver services and things that are fundamentally compelling in your market, then the incumbent organizations that are providing these things are just not going to get you where you need to. And after drawing the same diagram for everybody, I mean, about 20 different times, afterwards we thought, you know what, let's just go build this thing. So uh, we sort of started with an approach of, I mean, many people at that stage would have, you know, gone to get 40 million pounds worth of VC money and sort of locked themselves in a, uh, in a basement for, for three years while they were sort of tinkering away. But from our perspective, the, the only thing that really matters with new technology is that there is trust in that technology and that people are actually using it. So for me, this wasn't an exercise in us building what we thought was best. It was a, an exercise in actually building something that really met a industry problem. So doing that with a partner was way more beneficial to us than doing it in complete isolation. So the partnerships, you know, we spoke to a few different people, but really loved the DMB guys. You know, they were both the the old CEO and and actually the the new lady who's just taken over, just so culturally aligned to the way in which we work and actually have such a great aspiration for really where their organization can go. Uh, Norway as as a country is incredibly digitally savvy. The government has invested in some really, really good digital systems that you could integrate into as well. But really, the plan with with uh, Foundry is to be in a situation where slice by slice, we replace the existing technology and capability within that organization. And as I sort of said from the get-go, this is really about building a network of networks. I think with SaaS-based systems, what you can allow to do And actually, if you look at some of the incumbent players, this is really where they'll come unstuck is for everybody on the platform, the platform becomes cheaper. For everybody's investment from a license perspective, your ability to develop the platform exponentially grows. And this is very different when you're building SaaS-based systems than when you're building systems that are built to sit in data centers with, you know, 25, 30 million upgrade costs every two to three years. Mm -hmm. The world has just moved on so dramatically. And uh, whether it's cloud-based systems, whether it's microservices architecture, whether it's uh, Kubernetes and Kafka, all of these things allow you to do things in a way that you fundamentally wouldn't be able to do before. Again, this is where, for me, you know, fintechs being born in the digital age rather than digitizing from a analog past uh, are just setting a completely different standard in terms of what's expected from a technology perspective. Right, right. So then what parts, I mean, are you in eventually going to be 
working with DNB to replace their entirety of their core infrastructure, core banking infrastructure. Are you sort of, and where are you on that journey? Uh, absolutely. This is this is really about um, for for DMB. They've they've sort of publicly said this is this is really about cost efficiencies from from their perspective. You know, doing it cheaper and doing it better uh, is not a, a thing that is mutually exclusive. So if you can go from you know a, a four month product review and, and deployment process to being able to do that in 90 seconds, then uh, you know that's a really good place from their perspective. We've started with uh, unsecured credit. But we've quickly moved into credit cards and current accounts and being able to then prove the platform because what we're we're trying to do is really reduce the complexity in these systems. If you look at actually how many organizations have been created, they've been wildly successful for you know a couple of hundred years acquiring other customers, acquiring other uh, competitors, and to a point where they've got just a, a, a such a wide array of, of multiple monoliths in their back office. Mm-hmm. This is really what leads to probably the, the, the most worrying thing if you're the CEO of a, a big bank, which is an OPEX cost that you just can't do anything about. You know, without major, major rationalization of, of the technology that sits within the back office of many of these organizations, they are quite simply never going to be able to compete with the, the new fintechs coming into the market. We really have you know, Clayton Christensen's innovators dilemma playing out in front of us over the next five years. You know, can the incumbents really understand uh, innovation and technology quicker than the small, nimble startups and fintechs really attain any level of material scale? And that's that's the most exciting thing for us. It's uh, we are taking you know the the approaches, the you know the mentalities and methodologies that fintech has brought about. Uh, and deploying them against very large scale problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, then, what about the U.S. market? Obviously, it's you know the largest market in the world, with maybe the possible exception of China, but certainly in the West, it's the largest market. And you know, many you know, thousands and thousands of banks here, many of them using infrastructure that is was built in the '60s and '70s still. So, how are you approaching the the U.S. market? And do you have do you have clients like DNB already piloting your stuff here? Uh, absolutely, we do. Um, we are uh, building out something actually uh, a retail capability right now that will go to market in Q2 this year. Um, so we will be sort of in continuing to sort of expand out. I should say, you know, Foundry very much is about the stage that we're in is very much about the the partnerships that we're we're taking to to build it out. So you know, the network of networks for me, each node in that network is about the partnership that we put in place to to really sort of take it to market. So we're in um, pretty advanced discussions with a, a few people around the globe that we we essentially work in those partnerships to create geographical exclusivity for a period of time. But definitely there's um, some really interesting conversations happening in Australia. There's some really interesting conversations happening in the US. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have some some super interesting news to uh, to shout about soon, I'm sure. Okay, so the, the partnerships then, that you t- are you talking about partnering with other you know, software companies? Because, I mean, 160 people, 180 people, whatever you said, to, to completely replace uh, core banking uh, infrastructure is it would be challenging. So I, I imagine that's what – I mean, t- tell us exactly what how it's going to work where you're not going to just create all the code yourself, it sounds like, but what, what are you doing it with partnering with existing suppliers who already have existing relationships in banks? 
Um, no, I, I mean the the partnerships that we we sort of in place are predominantly with you know big tier one financial services organisations. Okay. I think the you know the the reality of of where we are today. I mean we're just over 180 people. Uh, you know across all of these different divisions. You know digital is is fundamentally a small team sport. You know the 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 days of needing 5,000 people to do a thing have have died and gone away. And this is really quite a difficult thing for, I think, many of the, the big incumbent organizations. You know, if, if something is priced on time and materials, then you would like it to take a lot of time and a lot of materials if you have a lot of materials, right? right. So, you know, being in that situation where fundamentally the, the world has shifted and it's, it's more about having the, the 15 to 20 people who are best at doing it. Uh, and actually, this is really what, if you look at any fintech player globally right now, you know, they are... Uh, they're scaling up, but the areas in which they're scaling up is predominantly not really the engineering side of things that gets you know really really large. It's it's actually in customer service and customer support. So you know even a player like Monzo now over the in the UK who has you know four four to five million customers, you know the majority of their their employees are customer service. Uh, their engineering practice has scaled, but not to the scale that actually a you know a global bank or a global you know, more sort of legacy incumbent organization would would have done. So, you know, fundamentally, digital is a small team sport. This is about having the the best people rather than the most people. And um, from our perspective, actually, you know, Foundry in itself with, what is it, 47 people, I think, within within Foundry, has been able to implement into a US organization, have built alongside it with a the, all of the, the capability that we're building with DMB and a third organization in the mix that we're, we're working with as well. So again, it's if you do these things right, if you approach them in the right way, if you have the right talent and you have the right culture, then you know not only digital, but success is, is very much a small team sport. So then do you think the, you know, there's some of these big banks, um, UK, US, you name it, around the world. I mean, you're talking thousands, tens of thousands in some cases, of uh, of software engineers at these companies are you saying that's that's going the way of the dinosaurs and we and and in a decade or two that they will be vastly smaller in number 100% i mean if you look at um if you look at any i mean i, w- I would hope so but equally I mean, bureaucracy and governance has a way of uh, existing like, uh, you know, like you wouldn't believe. Right. So if you look at any government office, then actually the level of, uh, you know, bureaucracy and, and, and governance around processes, uh, again, the, the sort of ossification around the, the thing that made them successful in the first place can, can often just make things a lot harder than they really need to be. So I think very much with the, the old incumbent organizations, the technology has very much led them to an operating model that expects everything to take forever and cost a lot of money. You know, most of the time, the hardest thing that we have convincing people is that things don't cost as much or take as long as they really expect it to do. And it's a, it's an interesting one. It's almost Stockholm Syndrome-esque in terms of, you know, surely we have to do your 5 million PowerPoint presentation or surely we have to do, uh, you know, six months of requirements gathering. And the reality of the world when everything, when your technology dictates that everything is difficult and everything takes a long time, then actually, absolutely, you have to be absolutely categorically certain the thing you're doing, the change you're making is right. 
because it takes you forever. It costs you a huge amount of money. And if you get it wrong, it's really difficult to undo. Mm-hmm. In a world where microservices architecture is, is in place and the impact that that can have fundamentally on your operating capability, you know, you can implement continuous testing and continuous integration. Your ability to actually make, you know, 100 deployments a day is not unheard of. Uh, you know, many of the challenger banks that are really focusing on operational efficiency can do 100 deployments a day to, to live. They can run a, a current account for, you know, less than 50 cents rather than, you know, $200 like a, a kind of a major, a major bank would do. Right. And this is really where the, the difference is, is if everything is a, a very, very small change, you can afford to be wrong. Uh, and when everybody, you know, got all excited about fail fast culture, this is really what was meant. It wasn't really about failing fast. It was about failing incredibly small and incredibly inexpensively. It's just that doesn't sell books in the same way. Right, right. Gotcha. Okay, we're almost out of time. But before I let you go, a couple more things. I, you know, we, We've touched on the podcast, but I also want to touch on the, the video you guys did uh, late last year, which I thought was was excellent. And why did you produce a video? And this video, for people who hasn't, I'll link to it again in the show notes. I mean, it's it's a professional, professional video. You didn't just do this on an iPhone or whatever. So talk about the video, the history of fintech and 11 years and that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, community is is really big for us. It's um, We're very, very proud of being part of the community. And we're actually really, really proud of, of what has happened, particularly here in London. You know, the since the financial crisis, the uh, the people in place, you know, either it's in the government or the regulator or the, the Bank of England have, have actually done a, a pretty phenomenal job to create the ecosystem in which we we operate today. You know, many of the, the fintechs globally actually wouldn't have existed without some really bold moves to create the the regulatory setup that we have in, in the UK with the PRA and the FCA. That actually created a competition mandate for for the FCA which led to fintech really being a thing. You know, it's been emulated now in Hong Kong and Singapore and even into uh, Emirates, uh, over into the US, uh, Australia, all over the world. So for us, many of the people who were really part of that story uh, hadn't been told before. They haven't had that, that light shone on them to really highlight to a global audience the great work they did to allow everybody in the ecosystem of fintech to do what they do today. So mm-hmm. for us, it was about shining a light on the community. It was very much like we do with the podcast. It was, we're very, very lucky to have super, super interesting conversations with people. And really all we want to do with the podcast or the video or anything in that, in that direction is just allow other people to hear that stuff. Uh, the more people who can hear interesting conversations or can expand their horizons, the better the whole community will be. So um, that's what we really, really set out to do. But um, yeah, if you're interested, it's over on 11years.film. Uh, you can watch the whole thing for free. I think we've had about 500,000 people who've watched it now, which is pretty uh, pretty impressive for an hour-long bit of content. But we've had uh, CEOs from Monzo and Revolut and Starling. Uh, even people from Barack Obama's administration flew over to take part and talk about really what happened at the points that uh, the administration was really trying to deal with the crisis. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, go over to the website, check that out. <laughs> yeah, I highly recommend it. It really was. It was far better than I expected when I started uh, watching it. Uh, it was really really well done so anyway last question then what's um you know we're recording this in in mid-february of 2020 what's what's on tap for 11fs for the rest of this year 
I think my um, I, I run the I run the company very much like a, a sports team, if I'm honest with you. So the things that I'm always most excited about are the uh, the big summer signings. So uh, <laughs> we have some uh, we have some really um, amazing talent inbound. Uh, we have some ridiculous talent already in the organization, whether it's Leader or Jason or Sam over in the US or Simon here in the, in the UK as well. But um, there are two or three people who are inbounds right now who I'm really, really excited by. Every time we um, bring somebody in, it brings new opportunity for the organization to do something different. And uh, and the, the people coming in are, are no, no different to that. So, uh, yeah, look, look out for those uh, summer signings very shortly. Okay, we will be on the lookout for that. Well, David, we'll have to leave it there. I very much appreciate you coming on the show today. No problem at all. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, see ya. Well, David puts forward some very interesting ideas there that uh, the digital is a small team sport and that you don't need tens of thousands of software engineers to create something. So it's going to be very interesting to see how big banks adapt. And it's really, this is a decade where it's all going to change, I think, that you're going, I think you'll find that technology in financial services is going to look extremely different uh, by the end of the decade. And I think, you know, David's vision is one that uh, I agree with and feel like it's it's inevitable in some ways that you're going to see some very large incumbents that get, you know, that really have a very different look and feel by the end of the decade. Now, we talked about Goldman Sachs, but there's many others out there that are recognizing that they need to change fundamentally. And I think that's what David's getting at. It's not just about putting in some new software. It's about fundamentally rethinking how the business operates. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Lended Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th at the Javits Center in New York City. Lending and banking are converging, and Lendit Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts, and get business done. Lendit Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to lendit.com slash USA to register.